0: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
1: On the 7th of June, 1520, Henry VIII of England and François Premier... Francis I, of France, met at the Field of Cloth of Gold. For three weeks, on English soil in northern France, the two kings and their entourages, a total of around 12,000 people, the equivalent of the population of England's second largest city at the time, feasted, jousted and made merry. This party without parallel was not just an early modern Glastonbury. It was a peace summit between the two kings. Arranged by Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, designed to demonstrate, as Professor Glenn Richardson has argued, that both countries chose to make peace but had the financial capacity to go to war. In fact, within three years they were at war. A new exhibition at Hampton Court called Gold and Glory explores the field of cloth of gold through paintings, objects, and manuscripts. Designed to mark the 500th anniversary of the field, it was, like so many things, delayed a year by the pandemic. I went on location to meet one of the curators behind the new exhibition. So I'm delighted today to be at Hampton Court, just standing outside Clock Court with Dr Alden Gregory curator of historic buildings here at Hampton Court who I've known since he was a wee strapling and starting out on his PhD but now he's all grown and knows all sorts of things I don't know so I'm going to learn from him today and we're going to talk about a wonderful new exhibition at Hampton Court called Gold and Glory. Hello Alden.
2: Hello welcome back to Hampton Court.
1: Thank you, it's lovely to be here. You might have noticed that Alden is slightly muffled because he's already put his mask on. I'm about to put mine on, so if you hear us through a sort of haze of cotton, I'm sorry about that, but we're being safe. Right, let's go up, shall we? We're just going up spiral staircase into what used to be Wolsey's apartments, or the Wolsey Rooms, as they were called. Yes,
2: it's one of the lovely things about doing an exhibition at Hampton Court is we can do these shows in historic spaces. And as we walk around, we'll talk about Wolsey a lot because he's a major character in the field of Cloth of Gold. But to put an exhibition here in the rooms at Hampton Court that he used, I think, brings an extra something to the story we can tell.
1: So what you can hear in the background, the sounds of horses and drums, are the sounds presumably recreated of... Either the battle we can see here... Well, it looks like we've got a battle scene. Is that what I can hear?
2: Absolutely. So we start the exhibition a few years before the Field of Cloth of Gold at the Battle of the Spurs, which is Henry VIII's attempt to be like the great medieval kings, his predecessors. I mean, he shares a name with Henry V, the great victor of Agincourt, and he styles himself as the King of France as well as the King of England, of course. And in 1513, he persuaded his council to allow him to invade France. And this first painting that you see in the exhibition is the commemorative painting painted for Henry not long after his victory, as it was at the Battle of the Spurs, showing him front and centre amongst the bloody action of the battle.
1: But this is a fictionalised picture, shall we say, isn't it?
2: It is. This is Tudor propaganda at its best. Henry was there in 1513, He was near the battlefield, but he certainly wasn't front and centre as he's depicted here. He wasn't leading his armies from the front. But here he is, presented like that great English hero in his mind, Henry V, on horseback in his fabulous armour. We have this painting in the exhibition to provide the background to the field of cloth of gold. You know, this is the tensions in Europe that existed in the early 16th century, the tensions between England and France and the Holy Roman Empire, the other great European power. And in Henry's mind, I think, perhaps the Hundred Years' War had never really ended. You know, he's still interested in fighting on the continent. It's part of his image of kingship, but it's also part of how England and those other European powers conduct international politics, I suppose.
1: So let's talk a bit about this picture we can see in some detail, because it's rather wonderful. So if you want to look this one up, it's called the Battle of the Spurs. As Alden said, we've got Henry seated on horseback, on an armoured horse, sort of black and gold armour at the centre of the picture and a man kneeling before him. Tell me about the details of this painting that stand out to you.
2: It's an incredibly dynamic painting. This is warfare in all of its bloody action. As you say, Henry is there right in the centre on his white horse. You can tell it's Henry because the arms of England are there on the horse's trapper. And Henry's there with his arms raised in the pose of a martial leader, a military hero. He's there with his black and gold armour... Plumes of ostrich feathers from the top of his helmet. I mean, this is really the classical figure of medieval military splendor.
1: And behind us, we have another picture, and this is Henry VIII. Again, it's a scene of armor and battle, but it's actually a peaceful meeting.
2: Yes, this follows on from the Battle of the Spurs and that campaign in France in 1513 that Henry led. He joined up with the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian I, right there on a European stage, allying himself with arguably the greatest ruler in Europe at the time, the Holy Roman Emperor, who ruled this vast territory, stretching all the way across Central Europe, including Germany, Austria, bits of Northern Italy. And there he is, Henry, in his golden armour there, as an equal with Maximilian. Again, this is real Tudor propaganda, And we see there the golden tent of Maximilian, the beautiful tent of Henry with the arms of England on it. And, of course, we'll encounter tents more and more as we go through this exhibition. But this is, again, an image of what Henry VIII thought it was to be a European king who could command armies, a king who could negotiate with his rivals, with his peers across Europe.
1: Yes, and actually, England at this time is a sort of rather puny country on the outskirts of Europe. And so by putting himself at the same size and with the same sort of degree of splendor and ostentation as the Holy Roman Emperor, this is once again another piece of Tudor propaganda. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, as you say, England was not one of the great European powers in the early 16th century, but Henry had real ambitions to place the country on the top table of European politics.
1: Now, what have we got here? This looks like a letter. Ah.
2: Yes, yeah, so this is a lovely thing. In the aftermath of the Battle of the Spurs and Henry's invasion of France, There was an attempt to make a peace between the two countries, and part of that peace negotiation involved marrying off Henry's sister to the French king, Louis XII. That marriage didn't last very long, because Louis XII died in 1515, less than a year after Mary and Louis married...
1: I think we should say that he was 52 and she was 18 at the time. And obviously a totally salacious comment would be that perhaps the excitement of the marriage was a little too much. I don't know.
2: You never know. But certainly he didn't last very long. And then Mary marries scandalously. Charles Brandon, Henry's great friend, ally, marries in secret without Henry's knowledge. And much with the encouragement, I think, of Louis XII's successor in France, François I., And Mary falls out of favour with Henry for doing this behind his back. And both Mary and Charles are ostracised. And this letter is a letter that Mary herself wrote to Henry in her own handwriting, pleading for forgiveness, really. But what's really interesting about it is she signs herself at the bottom of the letter, Mary, Queen of France. So even after the death of her husband, the French king, she's still styling herself as Mary, Queen of France. I think Henry is angry with his sister, I think that that continued connection with France, with having the Dowager Queen of France as part of his family, is something that he draws some sense of power from, I suppose.
1: Yes, and I suppose it's also slightly a negotiating point. Hello, King of England. This is the Queen of France writing, please forgive me.
2: Still using her status to get her own way.
1: And there's a lovely image above it, which is of Mary... Tudor, and there are lots of Mary Tudors, of course, lots of Marys in this point of time, but this is Mary, Henry VIII's younger sister, and Charles Brandon, and they are sumptuously dressed. I mean, she's absolutely bedecked with pearls, wearing a gorgeous French hood, which I guess would have been quite fitting. This is a later copy, isn't it? But I suppose we think of the French hood coming over with Anne Boleyn, but possibly this is an earlier example if it's based on a lost original.
2: Yeah, absolutely. She is wearing the fashions of the French court, and she's clearly there dressed as a queen. As you say her black velvet gown is covered in pearls and Charles Brandon next to her is no less regal almost in his own dress. It would be easy to mistake this for a portrait of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII himself but then this is Mary Tudor and Charles Brandon.
1: Yes bedecked with a collar showing off that he's a knight of the garter and they're holding hands which is quite sweet.
2: It is. It's a really sweet image and it shows their affection and their love for each other. And of course they were rehabilitated eventually and found favour again with the king. And Charles Brandon himself, along with Mary Tudor, both accompanied Henry to the Field of Cloth of Gold in 1520 and played a really important part, as we'll come to see.
1: And then finally in this gallery we've got, I guess, the two protagonists of the Field of Cloth of Gold. We've got King of France after Louis Twelfth, who was Francis, or François Premier, Francis I, and Henry VIII. Let's talk about these pictures here. Yes,
2: yeah, so this is a great pair of pictures hung to face off against each other, mm. really. They're eyeing each other up across the gallery. The painting of Henry is by an artist called Jus van Cleve, painted in about 1530, so it's a little after The Field of Cloth of Gold, which happened in 1520. This is Henry with his full beard beginning to put on weight. This is the Henry that we all recognise. And the painting of Francis is probably by the school of Eusvan Cleve. It's a copy of of an original. And these two paintings may well originally, or at least the original by Eusvan Cleve, may well have acted as a pair of paintings. Again, trying to sort of demonstrate the friendship between these two kings, between these two countries. Although you know there's a long history throughout Henry's reign of hostility between England and France, there are moments where they try to become friends again. And I think that these two paintings, probably when they were originally painted, represent a moment in which the two kings were, were trying to form an alliance. But we use them in this exhibition, I think, to show the rivalry between these two men. Francois came to the throne in 1515 after the death of... Louis the Twelfth, And although he rules a much richer, much more powerful country than Henry, I think Henry still sees him as a young upstart, certainly as a great rival. You know, Henry by 1515 15, is in his late 20s. He's about 28. Francois is in his mid-20s. He's 25. He's a younger man, but he inherits this incredibly wealthy country. He has a court that is incredibly sophisticated, known for its architectural and artistic patronage. He employs Leonardo da Vinci at his court, for instance. He's also demonstrated himself already as a great military commander he's really everything Henry wants to be and no wonder a great rivalry grew between the two of them
1: I never seen these two pictures hanging together before so I'd never realized quite how they speak to each other so are you suggesting that these could have been hung up like marriage portraits are I suppose the two together or intended to be a pair
2: I think so. I mean, visitors into the exhibition will see that the portrait of Francois I is slightly smaller, but as I say, that's a later copy of of a lost original, and I think that lost original probably acted as a pair with the portrait of Henry. We think these paintings were painted in the 1530s, so this may have been a later occasion where Henry and Francois were trying to create a new piece. In 1532, for instance, Henry travelled again to France to meet Francois. So it may be that these are painted in around about 1532 on the occasion of their second meeting.
1: I'm just really struck by the fact that their clothing is very similar. They're both wearing gowns which are furred which have a sort of black velvet dotted with pearls or jewels I think they're both pearls and their doublets are slashed and they've got sort of their under garment the sort of smock showing through the difference being that Henry's is a high-necked one and Francois I suppose conforming with the French style is low-necked but they're even wearing similar bonnets but Henry's has got this inscription which I suppose is quite important as well which is in Latin and is directing him towards preaching the gospel. So perhaps there's another message there as well.
2: Yeah, I think it's a painting that's very much of its time in the early 1530s. As you say, it's directing him towards preaching the gospel. This is him setting himself up as the head of the English church, I suppose.
1: Right, let's go through to where we hear that enchanting music coming through. Ah, and Wolsey.
2: Yeah, so here we encounter Wolsey for the first time. We've already said that we're in Wolsey's rooms, but we have this great painting of Wolsey from the National Portrait Gallery collection looking over us, this indomitable figure. And the story we're telling here is one of peace. So we've told the story of war in the room before, but here we talk about peace. By about 1518, there were increasing calls in Europe for a peace amongst the Christian kings partly led by Leo X, the Pope, who we see in an engraving on the wall there. Leo, I think, wanted to bring Christendom together really so that they could launch a crusade against Ottoman Turks who were threatening the borders of Europe. But there were other calls for peace as well coming from humanist thinkers like Erasmus and Thomas More and the French Guillaume Boudet, and an idea that perhaps peace was a greater route to glory for European monarchs than war was. So by 1518 there's a kind of drive for peace and it's being led in England at least by Wolsey. Wolsey is cardinal of the Catholic Church by this point. He is the Pope's representative in England and so spurred on by the Pope he is part of a move to bring together the rulers of all the European states to sign a peace treaty and behind you Susie we have that peace treaty that, that was in 1518 signed by more than 20 European leaders including Francois I, the King of France, and the Holy Roman Emperor. And really it's a miracle, I think, that Wolsey was able to bring these previously warring leaders together to sign this document. It's a huge document, it's about a metre and a half long with wax seals on the bottom. It's quite an imposing thing in its own right. It's worth saying that Wolsey, although he led this drive for peace, he's no pacifist. He was responsible in 1513 for persuading the English Council to allow Henry to invade France. So he's no pacifist at all, but he understands that by leading this push for peace, he can put Henry VIII at that top table of European politics. This treaty is known as the Treaty of Universal Peace, but it's also known as the Treaty of London. It's signed here in London in 1518, and that is Wolsey demonstrating that Henry and England are right there, front and centre of Europe.
1: And you've got, very excitingly, Wolsey's hat. So <laughs> this is a gorgeous, big, red felt hat. I think it's felt. Yeah. And it's his hat as the fact that he's a cardinal. It's quite something to see, something that Wolsey himself would have worn.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a really evocative thing. I mean, it's been described as Wolsey's hat since the 18th century. This hat was in the collection of Horace Walpole at Strawberry Hill.
1: Are you going to tell me it's not Wolsey's hat now? Well, no. we
2: are, ultimately we don't know. It's impossible to tell, but it's certainly a cardinal's hat of the period, so it may well be Wolsey's hat. And I think it's just really evocative to have that hat in these spaces that he occupied, to think that this hat may have been here 500 years ago. And then perhaps I can point out, in the same case, another object in the exhibition that gives me real shivers down the spine. We have this tiny and beautifully illuminated book of hours full of wonderful, colourful pictures, designs, and it's a book of ours, so it's full of the daily prayers. And this book of ours has an inscription in the front of it that says it was given by Cardinal Campeggio to Cardinal Wolsey. Now Campeggio is another of the Pope's representatives in England. He was in England in 1518 to help negotiate the Treaty of Universal Peace, the Treaty of London, and actually Wolsey managed to completely outmanoeuvre him and took all the glory himself. And then again, Campeggio is in England in the late 1520s and early 1530s as part of the negotiation of the divorce between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. So this book, with that inscription in the front of it, connecting it with these two extraordinary figures in Tudor history and Tudor politics, it just gives me a real shiver.
1: We come now into... Rooms that still bear the gorgeous geometric ribbed ceiling that would have been here in Wolsey's day, in blue and gold. Just so beautiful. I love these rooms.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a wonderful atmosphere in these rooms.
1: So what have we got in here?
2: Well, so we encounter Henry VIII again in the first case in this room, but Henry, as a lot of people won't have seen him, Henry without a beard, in this lovely little miniature from the Royal Collection. And this talks of a slightly strange story in the run-up to the Field of Cloth for Gold. Henry and Francois had both agreed to meet, and they'd agreed that they wouldn't shave their beards until they did meet. I think this is a way of showing very visually their commitments to this promise, and I think it's a thing that men did in the 16th century, to show a, a commitment to a promise. But Henry being Henry, went back on his promise. He sort of forgot, I think, and shaved off his beard. And this almost causes a diplomatic incident, because news of it reaches the French court, and specifically it reaches Louise de Savoie, who is Francois I's mother, kind of formidable power behind the throne in her own right. And she confronted the English ambassador, Thomas Boleyn, who is the father of Anne Boleyn, and demands an explanation. And what we see next to the miniature is the letter that Thomas Boleyn wrote to Wolsey describing this encounter and describing how he averted diplomatic crisis. And what he says in the letter is that he explained to Louise de Savoie that Henry was forced to shave by Catherine of Aragon because Catherine of Aragon preferred him to be clean shaven, which, as a man who wears a big ginger beard myself, I sort of find very relatable somehow. I don't know, it seems like a very kind of modern story, this idea of Henry being asked to shave by his long-suffering wife who is not enjoying the sensation of Henry's beard
1: and if it's true as opposed to something that Berlin has just come up with in order to give a good explanation you know blame the woman then I suppose it puts a different spin on the fact that later in the 1520s Henry starts growing his beard it's almost a sort of biting his thumb at Catherine
2: I suppose it is it's uh, his way of getting his own back perhaps
1: oh my goodness what have we got here
2: More hats. And here we have, really excitingly, a hat that's known as the Bristow hat from our own collection at Historic Royal Palaces. And this is a hat that is believed to have belonged to Henry VIII himself. It's almost like a sort of red velvet hat. It's a very unusual looking hat for anyone that's familiar with depictions of Henry VIII. I'm not sure you will have seen Henry wearing a hat like this. It's a sort of bonnet with a wide brim in a kind of really bush red velvet with a green ostrich feather attached to one side of it. So the story of this hat is that Henry had it with him in 1544, a later invasion of France, when Henry leads an English army to besiege Boulogne. Another English victory because the English take Boulogne. And in celebration, Henry is supposed to have thrown this hat in the air, and it was caught by Sir Nicholas Bristow, in whose family it then passed down the generations right from the 1540s all the way to almost the present day when it was handed to historical palaces to add to our royal ceremonial dress collection. We don't know for certain whether it is Henry VIII's hat but we do know that it is a 16th century hat and it's representative I think of the sort of fine courtly fashions that Henry and all those other courtiers and aristocrats that accompanied him to France in 1520 would have been packing in their chests ready for that journey across the English Channel from Dover to Calais because of course the field of cloth of gold happened in northern France it happened in a swathe of countryside just to the south of Calais and above the hat actually we see the Rock Collections painting the embarkation at Dover showing a fleet of English ships leaving the harbour at Dover flying banners and the flagship itself with cloth of gold sails Henry stood proudly on deck and it's another wonderful piece of Tudor propaganda showing the magnificence of the English Navy, and therefore the magnificence of Henry himself, and the reflected magnificence of England. But for us in this exhibition, it represents that journey to France in 1520, and the incredible logistic complexity that it took to move maybe 6,000 English men and women across the channel to accompany Henry. We believe that about 12,000 people From England and France attended the field of Cloth of Gold, not including all of the sort of tourists and visitors that came to spectate. So, a real vast logistical effort to move the English court and all of its hangers-on from one side of the Channel to the other.
1: I love this picture. It's another glorious scene that has so many details, including Henry VIII himself, who's standing on the deck of one of these ships, and. It is showing this moment in the 1520s, but it gives away the sense that it was painted later because it's got in the foreground Henry's defences, the castles that were built along the south coast, this presumably near Dover in the 1530s and early 1540s, but these are circular, so these are late 1530s probably. And we've got also another detail that gives us away is that they're all wearing very short gowns, which became popular in the 1540s. And so there's a sort of sense that they aren't even trying to make it look like the 1520s, or they've forgotten that the fashion 20 years earlier was rather different. But one of the good things about this is that it shows, among other ships, the Mary Rose and here we've got some things from the Mary Rose collection as well.
2: Yeah absolutely so in the case below it we have a little knit comb I suppose it is a a hair comb from the Mary Rose made of wood and we put this in the case alongside the Bristow hat and alongside the comb is a woollen cap as well because we wanted to show that it's not just kings and queens who attend the field of cloth of gold it's not just the great lords and ladies of the realms but also ordinary people as well workmen and servants and tourists, and so I think there's a lovely juxtaposition between these two hats and these low-status and high-status objects that are in the case. catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions, and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers, and over on the Warfare Podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Now we've been talking about cloth of gold. We should probably actually say what cloth of gold is. We've got some here, amazingly.
2: Yes, this is a beautiful fragment of cloth of gold, from the early 16th century, made in Florence, which I think is one of the great centres of cloth of gold production. And cloth of gold is, I mean, it's sort of what it says on the tin, it is a cloth made from gold. This piece is red velvet, and then woven with a thread that is made from a strand of silk that's wrapped in gold foil. So it's incredibly sumptuous, incredibly expensive in its day. This is the sort of fabric that only really kings and the richest people could afford And you see this piece of cloth of gold in our exhibition under the lights of its display case, and it still glitters today.
1: And one of the things that we particularly see at the Field of Cloth of Gold, and there is no better person to be talking to about this, are the tents of the English and of the French. Tell me about this picture and tell me about tents.
2: Yes, I have an unhealthy fascination in the history of tents. But when you see an image like this, I think it's understandable. This is a design, I suppose, for one of Henry VIII's tents, and we know it's Henry VIII's tent because it has his heraldic beasts on the top of it—these huge sculptural statues of lions and greyhounds and griffins and all those heraldic animals that Henry adopted. And then, around the balance of the tent, is the royal motto "Duo duat So this is definitely a tent that's made for Henry VIII, and I've described these in the past as portable palaces, and they really were portable palaces. You know, this tent, made up of multiple chambers all connected together, had in it all of those rooms that you would expect to find in a palace like Hampton Court. It had a great hall and a great chamber, privy chamber, had bedchambers in it, even had toilets. This is proper Tudor glamping. <laughs> Although I say glamping, I see no evidence at all that Henry himself ever really slept in these tents, despite them having bedchambers. I think that these are all sort of ceremonial spaces, they're all spaces that can be used during the daytime by the king, and they allow him to have those spaces that he needs in order to conduct the business of being a king. In fact, Henry, at the Field of Cloth of Gold stayed in Guine Castle and we see next to this drawing of the tent a 16th century view of Guine Castle. But the tent is intended to display Henry VIII's magnificence and magnificence means power in the 16th century. Wealth, status, the ability to have a tent like this made for you means that you're a powerful person. And for all that Henry and Francois came together at the Field of Cloth for Gold in the spirit of friendship, you know, there's a great rivalry still there and they're both showing off to each other. Mm-hmm. So these sorts of structures, these sorts of tents, are one way in which they show off. The really great tent at the Field of Cloth of Gold was actually a French tent, the one that shines through all of the records and descriptions of the Field of Cloth for Gold. And it's a tent that Francois had erected in his encampment at Ars where the French camped and the descriptions of it say that it's covered from top to bottom in blue velvet cloth of gold, studded with golden fleur de lis with a six-foot golden statue of St. Michael on top. And this tent, according to the descriptions, was 120 feet tall in the centre. You know, they talk about it having two ships' masts at its centre, lashed together and having been erected by sailors. Now, if you can picture the White Tower in the centre of the Tower of London, that's about 120 feet tall. So this is an absolute vast structure, an extraordinary thing, and actually an embarrassing failure as well, because although the Field of Cloth of Gold happened in summer 1520 in June 1520, the weather was terrible. It seems to be kind of universal truth of the 16th (laughs) century that if you erect a tent, the weather's going to be apocalyptically bad. And so it was in June 1520, and Francois' 120-foot-tall tent actually blew over before the Field of Cloth of Gold started.
1: Just to pick up on the point about Henry staying at the castle at Guyenne, also he has a temporary palace, which was something like 300 metres or yards square? It's about
2: 300 feet square. 300 300 feet
1: feet square, okay, I'm exaggerating (laughs) it. Which is brick and stone and glass, but he doesn't stay there, you don't think?
2: So this is a really fascinating building. It is brick and stone and glass, but it's also a tent. It's a two-storey building, about 100 metres square, with a chapel projecting out the back. And the lower story of it is built of brick and it houses all of the sort of service buildings. But then the upper story is a timber frame that's covered in canvas that's then painted to look like stone and masonry and the slate of the roof. So it's like a sort of Hollywood film set almost, but <laughs> or a very big marquee. And it's, it's an extraordinary thing. That by the time they got round to actually organizing the field of cloth for gold, by the time it was agreed that it would happen, they really only had about two and a half, three months at the most to construct everything and to create these campsites and create things like the temporary palace. So this palace is thrown up in about two and a half months flat. Again, it's a sort of mind-blowing feat, and it is about magnificence. Henry has an army of builders and craftspeople who can put this thing together, and I think that shows how powerful he is. To Francois. But like you say, this is again not a space in which he sleeps. It it contains a long banqueting hall where lots of the kind of entertainments at the Field of Cloth of Gold were hosted and it has a chapel and then it has apartments in it for Henry VIII himself, for Wolsey, for Catherine of Aragon and for Mary Tudor, his sister. But again, I think these are kind of daytime spaces. These are the spaces in which to conduct the business of being a king because it has a long passage attached to it that leads the king back to Guine Castle where he sleeps in the warm and dry overnight. I think the other way you can look at this temporary palace is as a pavilion at a world expo or at the Venice Biennale for instance. This is demonstrating England's place in the world through architecture, through temporary architecture. And indeed this building was open to the tourists that turned up at the Field of Cloth of the Gold. There's a really wonderful letter from a French monk who travelled up from his monastery a little bit further to the south who is given a guided tour of the temporary palace he says that you know when he arrives there are courtiers and priests there ready to give tours and he's taken around all of these grand kind of banqueting suites all hung with the finest tapestries from the royal collection and from wolsey's own collection in the window is stained glass made by the king's glazier galleon hone the chapel is absolutely full of gold golden statuary cloth of gold altar cloths again full of stained glass you know this is completely sumptuous And the French monk is is overawed by it, although he's mostly overawed by the fact that at the end of the guided tour he's given a free glass of wine and talks about how it's the best wine he's ever drunk. And then he goes to the French encampment at Ard, which is about five or six miles away from Guine, and tries to see the French banqueting house, because the French also have banqueting houses too. In fact, they have a banqueting house that, when you read the descriptions of it, sounds a little bit like a kind of proto-globe theatre. It's a round building, a ring with a stage in the middle and banked seating out the side so that an audience can watch the banqueting. But this French monk isn't allowed in. They don't have the same sort of open access for tourists at the French camp and he gets quite disgruntled about it and says, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if the French were a bit more like the English on this occasion?
1: But let's go through to the pièce de la résistance, which is the picture of the field of cloth of gold itself, the most remarkable picture, I think, in your collection. Well, I mean, that's arguable. we've got lots, but <laughs> this is rather wonderful.
2: This is really the centrepiece of the exhibition, the painting of the Field of Cloth of Gold from the Royal Collection. And it's such an extraordinary painting. It's a painting that you can stand in front of for hours, as I have done, and still see new details and see things that you haven't seen before. And it's a great piece of propaganda again. This is another painting that's painted maybe 20 years after the Field of Cloth of Gold and it's a moment in which Henry is getting old and infirm and looking back on the great triumphs of his youth. In a way, this painting is a portrait of Henry VIII. He's there front and centre on his horse, wearing golden robes. He is, I think, the first thing that you notice when you walk into this room and and see the painting. But what the painting does, in reality, is squash the 18 days of the Field of Cloth for Gold down into one two-dimensional Painting. It's a series of vignettes that show the most important moments from the field. So Henry is there front and centre, riding into Guine, the town of Guine where he camped. And then in the background you see the first meeting between Henry and Francois. Often this little vignette of Henry and Francois beneath the golden tent is taken to be the two kings wrestling one of the famous stories from the Field of Cloth Gold. But I think actually this is them embracing this is their first meeting below a golden tent in the so-called Val d'Or, or or the Golden Valley, where that meeting happened. And actually, I think that the tent in the painting is probably representative of that 120-foot tall tent that I described earlier, although we know that that had blown down by the time they actually met. And then, if we move to the right from there, we see what really was the main activity at the Field of Cloth of Gold. The Field of Cloth of Gold was first and foremost a tournament in a very kind of medieval sense. It was a tournament of jousting and foot combats and combat from horseback. And so here in the top right-hand corner, we see the jousting field with two knights on uh, horseback running at each other against the barrier, with Henry and Francois again depicted watching on, and here with their two queens as well, Catherine of Aragon and Claude of France. And coming forward from there, we see the vast temporary field kitchens that were set up to feed those twelve thousand people who attended you know, they were taking nearly a hundred thousand eggs they were taking thousands of sheep and cattle you know, a lot of which walked to the field of cloth of gold but didn't walk home again about two hundred thousand liters of wine was taken just by the english and the wine was necessary to run through the wine fountains as well as to be drunk at the banquets and feasts and, and we see in the foreground here one of those wine fountains flowing with red wine and with revelers helping themselves to the wine. And wine fountains were a really kind of typical way for celebration in the 16th century and in the earlier centuries. You know, when there was a the coronation in London, all the fountains in London were made to run with wine. And here again, we see the fountain outside the temporary palace at Gein running with wine. And it's a way of the king demonstrating his largesse, his hospitality, his generosity in giving free wine to all comers.
1: Um, one of the, my favourite parts about this picture is the fact that it shows also the effects of too much wine. You've got someone basically looks like he's being sick next to the temporary palace. There's a fight broken out on the steps of the fountain. And in the foreground, you've got a man groping a woman <laughs> who's also drinking wine at the time, a dish of wine. And some other people are looking a bit worse for wear. It's very creative of the artist, I think. There are two other things I particularly want to talk about in this picture. We must talk about the dragon, Just the most fabulous, mystical, mythical creature there. What do you make of the dragon?
2: Yeah, the dragon's a really interesting feature, isn't it? And wonderfully drawn. I've seen people stood in front of this painting before and say, well, you know, this painting can't be real because it has a dragon in it. It must be some sort of fantasy. But actually, the dragon relates very much to a real event at the Field of Cloth of Gold. On the penultimate day of the field, a great celebratory religious mass was held in a temporary chapel that was built on the tilt yard on the tournament field, presided over by Wolsey. And as that mass was coming to an end, a dragon flew across the sky. And eyewitness accounts talk of all of the people at the mass gasping in astonishment at this huge dragon that that flew across the sky. And what that dragon was, was a kite made of hoops of willow, with canvas stretched over it, shaped as a dragon, painted as a dragon, probably with pyrotechnics inside it as well, because eyewitnesses talk about its eyes glowing and its mouth hissing on the end of a rope that was attached to a cart that was being dragged from Ard towards Guine. It's a kind of celebratory thing. It's another kind of showing-off thing. It's showing the grasp of technology and the ability to make kites. But it's also very symbolic, because, of course, the Tudors have a Tudor dragon as one of their badges. And Francois I, his badge was a salamander, So in a way, this dragon, it's representing both the Tudor dragon and the salamander of France. And it's, again, talking about the kind of unity of the two countries.
1: And the last thing I want to pick out here is the fact that when we see this glorious picture of Henry VIII, if you look carefully, you can see that actually there's a circle around his head. And it looks like his head was rebased at some point. Do you think that's what's happened to it?
2: Yeah, it certainly looks as though his head has been replaced. I mean, the old story is that the Spanish visitor to Hampton Court after the Reformation was so angry with Henry for abandoning the Catholic Church that he stabbed Henry in the head with his knife, causing damage that then had to be replaced. I mean, that may well be an apocryphal story, but yes, it seems that Henry's head has been replaced. Perhaps more likely, I think, that the original depiction of Henry had him in profile, and now we see him face on, looking straight towards the viewer, very much in the kind of model of the famous Holbein portraits of Henry.
1: And in keeping with that, the Henry we see there is not the Henry of 1520, although he possibly doesn't have a beard, but it looks much more like the Henry of the late 1530s, which is what Holbein is depicting, 1536-37.
2: Absolutely. And as I have said, you know, this painting is probably painted in the mid-1540s. So they're looking back, but the painter is presenting Henry in the guise that was very recognisable in the 1540s, in that sort of propagandised image of Henry that had been created by Holbein.
1: Right, what's in here?
2: Well, I mean, I think here we up the bling factor, as it were. I mean, look at this. This is just um, beautiful. So we've walked into a room where we're showing a set of religious vestments, known as the Stonyhurst vestments at the centre of the case is the Stonyhurst Cope which is a cloth of gold religious cope bearing the English royal badges right on the back of it is the Beaufort Portcullis with the crown above it and the Tudor roses winding round and next to it is a chasuble also made of the same cloth of gold with those entwined Tudor roses and you can see the cloth of gold glittering under the lights here and the condition of these pieces is fabulous. And then the third thing in this case is a chalice cloth, also made from the same cloth of gold. And these things are so important to the Field of Cloth of Gold story. I mentioned that on the penultimate day of the Field of Cloth of Gold, a mass celebrating peace was celebrated in a temporary chapel that was constructed on the tilt yard. And it's these very vestments, these cloth of gold vestments that we see here, that were worn by the English priests at the Field of Cloth of Gold. So what we have here is the last remaining three pieces of a set of 29 religious vestments that were commissioned in about 1500 by Henry Seventh, VII, Henry VIII's father, for Westminster Abbey. And they're made in Florence by Florentine weavers and then left by Henry the Seventh in his will to Westminster Abbey, and in 1520, when the English are preparing to go to the Field of Cloth of Gold, these vestments are still the finest set of religious vestments available anywhere in the country. Wolsey and Henry borrowed them from Westminster Abbey to take with them, and chroniclers who were at the Field of Cloth of Gold, like Edward Hall, they talk about seeing the English priests wearing these red and gold vestments, dripping with pearls and precious stones. They say. So to have these three last surviving pieces all in one place for the first time, on loan to us from Stonyhurst College, which is the most extraordinary place in itself, the most extraordinary collection. You know, I urge you, Susie, and and all of your listeners to visit Stonyhurst if you ever have the opportunity. But to have these pieces here is very special. To know that these vestments were at the Field of Cloth for Gold and to know that maybe one of these surviving pieces was worn by Wolsey himself and for it now to be in Wolsey's own rooms is a wonderful, wonderful thing.
1: This is one of those moments where I feel like my heart stops a beat and the proximity of the past is such that it it really interrupts our own lives. And I guess this gives us a glimpse, three of items out of 29 just a tiny part though a very important part of the celebrations at the field of the cloth of gold this gives us a tiny glimpse of the sumptuousness and there is no other word for it magnificence within which henry the eighth lived that his world was full of things like this that something more beautiful than most of us will ever see in our lifetimes and this was what made up the material fabric of his his life. It's uh, very moving. And I guess also feels to me that it gives me a real insight into what we call material culture, what was lost, the stuff that was lost at the time of the Reformation and what subsequently, not really under Henry, but particularly under Edward would change and the whole culture around that that would go. And just before we leave the exhibition, to finish us off, Auden, what's this?
2: So this is the final case in the exhibition, and it rounds off the story. It takes us from the last day of the Field of Cloth of Gold, when the two courts exchanged expensive gifts. And we see here the Burley Neff from the v collection, a wonderful piece of French goldsmith's work that we use here as a representative of the sort of fine and expensive Gifts that Henry and Francois and their courtiers will have exchanged amongst each other. This is a keystone to the way diplomacy was conducted in the 16th century. And I think that, you know, as they were exchanging these gifts, the two courts left the field of cloth of gold with a sense of optimism that this peace that they'd been celebrating, the peace that was signed in 1518, might endure. But actually, of course, in reality, Europe remained on a knife edge and it didn't take much of a transgression. By any of those three great european powers we've spoken about henry francois or charles v for europe to be plunged back into war and the final image maybe a downer to end the exhibition on is the painting of the battle of Pavia, another scene of battle of soldiers fighting each other and within maybe two years of the field of cloth of gold england france and the holy roman emperor had begun to transgress and europe had been plunged back into war so that peace that was celebrated in 1520 so lavishly was short-lived and commentators at the time people like bishop john fisher the bishop of rochester almost immediately began questioning it began questioning the lavishness of the field of cloth of gold and whether it was all worth it i think in 1520 in june when henry and francois were embracing their hearts were in it and there was an optimism for peace
1: I suppose that's right. All those, as you said earlier, and as Glenn Richardson has written about, all the time they were making peace, they were demonstrating their capacity to go to war. And that's what it came to in the end. Auden, thank you so much for this guided tour of this wonderful exhibition, Gold and Glory. How long is it going to be here at Hampton Court so people can come and see it?
2: I will be open until the 5th of September, and I would encourage everyone to come along and see these treasures.
1: Yes, these are things that are very, very rarely, if ever, apart from this, together at the same time. And there are things here that you're not going to get to see unless you come here. So come along and see these extraordinary treasures. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family. And do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.